0: Welcome to another Night of Warrior Reads. As always, make sure that you've handled anything before bed, that the room is dark, and that you're in a comfortable position. Remember, as you're listening, if you get excited by a story or interested, don't worry about it. Now is not the time for your mind to be racing. Now is the time for your mind to be resting. As always, we'll have copies of the recordings available on our website, as well as even the ability to order it should you want to in the morning. Now is the time for your reward for a good day lived, or a reminder to be a warrior tomorrow. I'll give you about five seconds to clear your head, and then we'll begin. Welcome, warriors. Tonight, our selection is from the book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. Tonight, we'll be looking through Chapter 3, The Hero as Warrior. Joseph Campbell takes us on a journey through the myths and legends that have permeated the psyche and soul of mankind throughout history. In his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, he shows us the path that leads to transformation that every warrior must take and the stages in the cycle that one must endure to emerge reborn as a hero. It's the process that every hero has gone through and the path that every warrior must take. Joseph Campbell shows us that the journey of the hero is the story of every great warrior and every legendary hero that has walked the earth or inspired mankind from the foundations of history to the stories that we love today, and most importantly, it's the story of you in your life, the warrior you are, and the hero you are destined to be. Every hero you look up to has walked the warrior path, responded to the call of adventure, crossed the threshold into a dangerous and unknown world, faced the trials and temptations, and emerged reborn triumphant and victorious as a new person and brings the blessings of their victories to the tribe. These are the people who change the world, the people that keep it spinning. And this is the story of how every day, in some way or another, you are called to be the hero of your own story. As always, you can read this book at any time in the future and it's worth the read so as you hear the stories that joseph campbell shares with you allow your inner warrior to place yourself there in the story and understand how it's really the story of you and how it's the story of every hero and every warrior across time space and imagination so relax and enjoy The place of the hero's birth, or the remote land of exile, from which he returns to perform his adult deeds among men, is the midpoint, or navel, of the world. Just as ripples go out from an underwater spring, so the forms of the universe expand in circles from the source. Above the broad, unmoving depths, beneath the nine spheres in the seven floors of heaven, At the central point, the world navel, the quietest place on earth, where the moon does not wane, nor the sun go down, where eternal summer rules and the cuckoo everlastingly calls, there the white youth came to consciousness. And that is the beginning of the hero myth of the Yakuts of Siberia. Let's continue. The white youth went forth to learn where he was, and what his dwelling-place was like. Eastward of him lay stretched abroad, follow field, in the middle of which arose a mighty hill, and on the summit of the hill a gigantic tree. The resin of that tree was transparent and sweet-scented, the bark never dried or cracked, the sap shone silver. The luxuriant leaves never wilted, and the catkins resembled a cluster of reverse cups. The summit of the tree rose over the seven heaven floors and served as a tethering post for the high god Yurin Aitayom. When the roots penetrated into subterranean abysses, where they formed the pillars of the dwellings of the mythical creatures proper to that zone, the tree held conversation "'through its foliage, with the beings of the sky. "'When the white youth turned to face south, "'he perceived in the midst of a green grassy plain "'the quiet lake of milk that no breath of wind ever stirs, "'and around the shores of the lake were swamps of kirtle. "'To the north of him a somber forest stood with trees "'that rustled day and night, "'and therein was moving every kind of beast.' Tall mountains were lifted beyond it, and appeared to be wearing caps of white rabbit fur. They leaned against the sky and protected this middle place from the northern wind. A thicket of scrub stretched out to the west, and beyond it stood a forest of tall firs. Behind the forest gleamed a number of blunt-headed solitary peaks. Then the leaves began murmuring and a fine milk-white rain descended from them upon the white youth. A warm breath of wind could be felt. The tree began to groan, and out of its roots a female figure emerged to the waist. A woman of middle age with earnest regard, hair flowing free and bosom bare. The goddess offered her milk to the youth, with a sumptuous breast, then after partaking of it, he felt his strength increase a hundredfold. At the same time, the goddess promised the youth every happiness and blessed him in such a way that neither water, nor fire, iron, nor anything else could ever do him harm. From the umbilical spot, the hero departs to realize his destiny. His Adit deeds pour creative power into the world, sang the aged Van Des Lakes swell up, the earth was shaken, and the coppery mountains trembled, and the mighty rocks resounded, and the mountains clove asunder. On the shore the stones were shattered. The stanza of the hero bard resounds with the magic of the word of power. Similarly, the sword-edge of the hero warrior flashes with the energy of the creative source. And before it fall the shields of the outworn. For the mythological hero is the champion, not of things become, but of things becoming. The dragon to be slain by him is precisely the monster of the status quo. Hold fast, the keeper of the past. From obscurity The hero emerges, but the enemy is great and conspicuous in the seat of power. He is enemy, dragon, tyrant, because he turns to his own advantage the authority of his position. He is holdfast, not because he keeps the past, but because he keeps. The tyrant is proud, and therein resides his doom. He is proud because he thinks of his strength as his own. Thus, he is in the clown role, as a mistaker of shadow for substance. It is his destiny to be tricked. The mythological hero, reappearing from the darkness that is the source of the shapes of the day, brings a knowledge of the secret of the tyrant's doom. With a gesture as simple as the pressing of a button, he annihilates the impressive configuration. The hero deed is a continuous shattering of the crystallizations of the moment. The cycle rolls. Mythology focuses on the growing point. Transformation, fluidity, not stubborn ponderosity, is the characteristic of the living God. The great figure of the moment exists only to be broken cut into chunks and scattered abroad. Briefly, the ogre tyrant is the champion of the prodigious fact, the hero the champion of creative life. The world period of the hero in human form begins only when the villages and cities have expanded over the land. Many monsters remaining from primeval times still lurk in the outlying regions and through malice or desperation, these set themselves against the human community. They have to be cleared away. Furthermore, tyrants of human breed, uprising to themselves the goods of their neighbors, arise and are the cause of widespread misery. These have to be suppressed. The elementary deeds of the hero are those of the clearing of the field. Kut O'Yeesh or blood clot boy when he had been taken from the pot and had grown to manhood in a day, slew the murderous son-in-law of his foster parents, then proceeded against the ogres of the countryside. He exterminated a tribe of cruel bears. With the exception of one female, who was about to become a mother, she pleaded so pitifully for her life that he spared her. If he had not done this, there would not have been any bears left in the world. Then he slaughtered a tribe of snakes, but again with the exception of one who was about to become a mother. Next, he deliberately walked along a road which he had been told was dangerous. As he was going along, a great windstorm struck him, and at last carried him into the mouth of a great fish. This was a sucker fish and the wind was its sucking. When he got into the stomach of the fish, he saw a great many people. Many of them were dead, but some were still alive. He said to the people, ah, there must be a heart somewhere here. We will have a dance. So he painted his face white, his eyes and mouth with black circles, and tied a white rock knife to his head so that the point stuck up. Some rattles made of hooves were also brought. Then the people started in dance. For a while, Bloodclot sat making wing motions with his hands and singing songs. And then he stood up and danced, jumping up and down until the knife on his head struck the heart. Then he cut the heart down. Next he cut through between the ribs of the fish and let all the people out. Again, Bloodclot said he must go on his travels. Before starting, the people warned him, saying that, after a while, he would see a woman who was always challenging people to wrestle with her, but that he must not speak to her. He gave no heed to what they said, and after he had gone a little way, he saw a woman who called to him to come over. No, said Bloodclot, I am in a hurry. However, at the fourth time, the woman asked him to come over. He said, Yes, but you must wait a while, for I am tired. I wish to rest. When I have rested, I will come over and wrestle with you. Now, while he was resting, he saw many large knives sticking up from the ground, almost hidden by straw. Then he knew that the woman killed the people she wrestled with by throwing them down on the knives. When he was rested, he went on. The woman asked him to stand up in the place where he had seen the knives, but he said, no, I'm not quite ready. Let us play a little before we begin. So he began to play with the woman, but quickly caught hold of her, threw her upon the knives, and cut her in two. clot took up his travels again, and after a while came to a camp where there were some old women. The old woman told him that a little farther on, he would come to a woman with a swing, but on no account must he ride with her. After a time, he came to a place where he saw a swing on the bank of the swift stream. There was a woman swinging on it. He watched her a while, and saw that she killed people by swinging them out and dropping them into the water. When he found this out, he came up to the woman. "'You have a swing here. Let me see you swing,' he said. Said the woman, "'I want to see you swing.' "'Well,' said Bloodclot, "'but you must swing first. "'Well,' said the woman, "'now I shall swing. Watch me. "'And then I shall see you do it.' So the woman swung out over the stream. As she did this, he saw how it worked. Then he said to the woman, "'You swing again.' while I am getting ready, but as the woman swung out this time, he cut the vine and let her drop into the water. This happened on Cutbank Creek. We are familiar with such deeds from our Jack the Giant Killer nursery tales, and the classical accounts of the labors of such heroes as Hakrakles and Theseus. They abound also in the legends of the Christian saints as the following charming french tale of saint martha there was at the time on the banks of the rhone in a forest situated between avignon and aries a dragon half animal half fish larger than an ox longer than a horse with teeth as sharp as horns and great wings at either side of its body this monster slew all the travelers and sank all the boats It had arrived by sea from Galatia. Its parents were the Leviathan, a monster in the form of a serpent that dwelled in the sea, and the Onager, a terrible beast bred in Galatia, which burns with fire everything it touches. Now St. Martha, at the earnest request of the people, went against the dragon. Having found it in the forest in the act of devouring a man, she sprinkled holy water on it and exhibited a crucifix. Immediately, the monster vanquished, came like a lamb to the side of the saint who passed her belt around its neck and conducted it to the neighboring village. There the populace slew it with stones and staffs. And since the dragon had been known to the people under the name of Tarasque, the town took the name of Tarascon, in remembrance. Up to then it had been called Nerluk, which is to say Black Lake, on account of the somber forests which there bordered the stream. The warrior kings of antiquity regarded their work in the spirit of the monster slayer, this formula indeed of the shining hero, harrowing against the dragon has been the great device of self-justification for all crusades. Numberless memorial tablets have been composed with the grandiose complacency of the following cuneiform of Sargon of Akkad, destroyer of the ancient cities of the Sumerians, for whom his own people had derived their civilization. Sargon, King of Akkad, Vicergent of the Goddess Ishtar, King of Kish, Pashu of the god Anu, king of the land, great Ishaku of the god Inlil. The city of Uruk he smote, and its walls he destroyed. With the people of Uruk he battled, and he captured him, and in fetters led him through the gate of Inlil. Sargon, king of Akkad, battled with the man of Ur and vanquished him. In Myanmar, he smote, and its wall he destroyed, and its entire territory, from Lugash to the sea, he smote, his weapons he washed in the sea.